Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now this week we got a listener request. This listener request was for a composer that, upon reflection, we quite frankly can't believe we haven't talked about already. (laughs) I thought for sure we had, but it is Giacchino Rossini, and we will be looking at his ever-famous Arbor of Seville. Now, Rossini was born in 1792 in Pissarro, Italy. Like so many composers, his parents were musical as well. His mother was a singer, and his father was a trumpet player, who also had a day job as a slaughterhouse inspector. Hmm, interesting combination there. (laughs) Indeed. And apparently, Rossini's first musical gig in his childhood was playing the triangle in his father's band. A noble profession. Gotta have those triangle players. But his musical career soon took off, and by age 16, he had actually started composing operas. Of course, Rossini attended school for music as well. He went to the Accademia Philharmonica in Bologna. There, in addition to composition, he studied violin, harpsichord, and the horn. And he also developed a love for the classical Germans, especially Haydn and Mozart, Apparently, he was notorious throughout school for being such a lover of the German style of music that he earned the nickname Little German. (laughs) After he graduated from school, Rossini really found his niche, which was Italian opera, especially the opera buffa. Opera buffa is, of course, the comic opera style of Italy, and this style often features a love interest that ends in marriage But that's not all before there are great misunderstandings. In fact, one of Rossini's earliest opera buffas in 1811 was titled The Extravagant Misunderstanding. They were basically 19th century rom-coms. Exactly, yes. Now, Rossini's first rom-coms, his first operas, premiered in Venice. Rom-pras? Maybe there's something there. (laughs) Rossini's first operas premiered in Venice, and he stayed there for several more years. He went on to produce some of his most well-known works while in that city, such as Tancredi and The Italian Girl in Algiers. Thanks to his success, Rossini was invited to write commissioned operas for performance at La Scala, one of the most famous opera theaters in Italy. And eventually he moved back to Bologna, but also submitted works to the Impresario Domenico Barbea, who had two theaters located in Naples. He actually signed a contract here that he would produce a whopping one opera a year for each theater, which, considering all that goes into an opera, I think is a brutally tough commission. (laughs) Yeah, that is a total of two operas, two complete full works, all by himself. (laughs) It sounds not that big when you're just saying the number two, but it's a lot. It's a lot of work. 
So yes. anyway, Rossini continued for a few more years in Italy, producing hit after hit, and his fame spread throughout Europe. By 1823, Rossini decided to follow his fame and try out Paris. Of course, the Parisian opera stage was world-renowned, and could a staunch Italian who loved the German style conquer this stage as well? Why, yes, of course. <laughs> Paris actually loved Rossini and welcomed him with open arms. And with new surroundings, Rossini's own musical style also changed. The Italian style was very ornamented and frilly, but the French at this time were a bit more serious and straightforward in their music. And while he was there, Rossini cut himself a great deal. He signed a contract with the Paris Opera that somehow guaranteed that he would get a lifelong stipend even if he stopped producing new works. Good job, Rossini. I know, he, was, he found a good deal there. Wheeling and dealing. <laughs> and his final opera, William Tell, in 1829, was a crowning achievement in both France and beyond. Now, when we say final opera, please don't be sad, because it's not because Rossini died just after writing it, like, unfortunately, might be true for some other composers. Rather, he just chose to retire. He was a smart man who could read the changing trends and understood that he had reached the apex of his career, and he would steadily become old news as the up-and-coming composers ironed out new modern styles. So basically, he quit while he was ahead. Mm -hmm. But to say he quit is also disingenuous <laughs> because he lived for 40 more years in retirement and occasionally produced little works here and there, and notably two monumental sacred works in his retirement, quote unquote retirement, <laughs> the Sabbat Mater and Petite Messe Solennel. And considering that Rossini was fairly well off from his opera earnings, he was as such able to indulge in his hobbies during his retirement, which just leave, live in the dream, I would say. So apparently he was a big foodie and he really enjoyed fine dining and he even enjoyed a little bit of cooking himself. So he would hold lavish dinner parties for friends and notable figures just to serve them some really scrumptious food. Now, for all that he has accomplished during his life, 34 operas before he was 31 years old, he was also apparently very lazy. <laughs> you know, I feel that on a very deep level. Well, sometimes they say that the best, you know, the most industrious people are the laziest because they simply find the easiest way to do things. <laughs> Well, in one such perhaps exaggerated anecdote, it tells of Rossini who was composing while lounging in his bed, which apparently he did very frequently, and he dropped a manuscript for an aria that he was writing, and rather than get up and get that piece of paper out of his nice cozy blankets and pillows, he just pulled up a fresh paper from his notebook and wrote a whole new piece. <laughs> that sounds not unlike what I do on a daily basis for work from home. <laughs> Shh, don't let your bosses hear. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rossini eventually got out of that bed and moved back to Italy in his later years. He finally passed away at the age of 76 in 1868. 
So now, hope you need a haircut because it's time for the Barber of Seville. You will probably <laughs> recognize the piece that we're talking about today because obviously we're not going to have time to go through the entire opera that's an opera. This is just an, this is just an aria from the Barber of Seville titled Largo al Factotum. And just of a side note, we are listening to a wind band arrangement of this piece, not the original operatic aria form. Yes, indeed. Now, the title translates, because if you're like me, you don't know Italian, the title translates to Make Way for the Factotum. Of course. Of course. Of course. And factotum, then, meaning a servant who can do everything. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> now, welcome. the opera itself was premiered in 1816 in Rome and was actually, funnily enough, one of the few flops that Rossini ever produced. The likely reason was that it was based on a literary work of the same name that had also recently been set to music by another opera composer, Giovanni Paiseo, that had been well regarded at its premiere. Thus, Rossini's was perceived as second best. But we see which one has actually endured. Hmm. Indeed. I think it was this, quote, second best. Now, if you <laughs> want an episode about Giovanni Paiseo, then let us know. And we'll see if we <laughs> could make that happen, maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we can't, but we'll do our best. <laughs> So, though we're not looking at the overture of this opera today, you are likely very familiar with its popular themes. However, the overture itself was not actually written for this particular opera. Rossini was famous in his laziness for not actually incorporating themes of the operas into his overtures, which thus allowed him to repeatedly use the same overture for multiple operas in a row. But now this particular overture is stuck onto this opera, and so it is the Barber of Seville Overture. Indeed. So, a little bit of Barber of Seville lore. The brief overview of the story of Barber of Seville takes into account that it's actually kind of a prequel to Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Figaro is actually the main character of both operas. Now, Rossini based his story on the French play of Pierre Beaumarchais. Now, Rossini's own libretto was written by César Sterbini. The basic story is that Figaro is a jack-of-all-trades, barber, surgeon, and matchmaker, etc., among <laughs> others. A wealthy count has his eye on a young lady who is a ward of Dr. Bartolo. Through shenanigans, Figaro is able to make the match come true, and almost everyone ends up happy. <laughs> so this, of course, is not the full synopsis. We can't put a whole two-and-a-half-hour opera into two sentences. But we're not here to talk about opera plots. We are here to talk about music. So we encourage you to look up the plot for yourself, and we do have references listed in our bibliography page. So on to that music. The aria is the first bit of music that we actually hear from the titular Figaro as he enters the scene. He is basically bragging to the audience about how great he is at everything, and the whole city adores him. Basically Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Except I think he's actually the good guy in this story. Gaston was <laughs> the villain. <laughs> Indeed. So Figaro has one line that translates to, quote, Razors, combs, lancets, and scissors are all here at my command. And another, quote, 
Everyone asks for me. Everyone wants me. Woman, boys, the elderly, girls. Here, this wig. Quickly, this beard. Here, this bleeding. Quickly, this note. Figaro. Now, he sounds quite busy with all that <laughs> bleeding and notes and wigs and such. But yes. I guess he is a quality city servant. Ah, yes. A factotum, if you will. Oh, a new fancy word for us. Certainly for me. Now, the part of Figaro Factotum is played by a baritone voice in the opera. And in the band arrangement we're listening to today, it's played by the instrument with the most similar range and song-like quality, being the euphonium or baritone horn. The piece opens with a brilliant fanfare from the ensemble with triplets that rotate through the C major tonic, second, and seventh. The next phrase is a little more tentative sounding with downward 16th note lines that pass through the ensemble. This is then repeated in sequence and a step up in D major. We then have a frenzy of excitement just before the main solo comes in. The woodwinds play some very fast 16th notes with grace notes, and it's all quite staccato sounding. These are the flourishes and decorations that the Italian opera buffa was so well known for. As this anticipatory section continues, more and more instruments enter and it creates a great crescendo effect. This was also a hallmark of Rossini's style, to have a grand and building crescendo over a repeated pattern. In fact, he was known, sometimes ungraciously perhaps, as Signor Crescendo, or how often he used this technique. <laughs> and then finally we get to the solo. The euphonium plays its baritone melody that is a repetition of the full ensemble melody that we heard at the beginning of the piece. As an operatic solo, this is meant to be a bit challenging in order to show off the strengths of the singer. So imagine this little arpeggio actually being sung. That's really some impressive voice acrobatics. Also in this next section, the whole ensemble plays along with the soloist. Again, think back to the original vocal form of the opera. This would have been quite a show if the baritone can project his voice over a full orchestra without amplification. As the piece goes on, it turns into a bit of a ritornello. So essentially there are changes in the soloist melody, but we will always return to that first fanfare melody that we started with. This is a fun chromatic passage. Maybe it's because we are not vocalists, but it seems like it would be hard to sing this back and forth chromatic line accurately. But obviously the professionals can do it. Indeed, now that chromatic line is also the perfect way to transition into 
A key change. Oh. We've been moving along in G major, but this takes us to E flat major. Though this seems unusual, since G major has an E natural rather than an E flat. However, Rossini has essentially made a regression rather than a progression, since G natural is actually the third of E flat major. This next bit of writing could be interpreted in a fun way, if you'll allow us. So the way the soloist drones on a repeated note and then utilizes intervals of fifths when moving almost sounds like a Gregorian chant. And the lyrics in this section are Figaro expounding on his own resourcefulness and skill and how everyone looks to him for assistance. So it's almost a bit of like a thank God for me kind of thing. There is a section here in the band arrangement where the euphonium gets to play a cadenza. This is not written in the original score, but recall that this aria was meant to highlight the skills of the soloist. While fancy note passages that are written showcase the singer, a cadenza like this will showcase the instrumentalist. cadenza-like passage that is written in the original score is this famous line where Figaro is mocking all the people who call for him, demanding his attention. But this little cadenza isn't all Figaro has to say on the subject. For the next several phrases, while the orchestra plays that first theme again, Figaro goes on impersonating people summoning him and him being the faithful servant answering to their calls. And now we get to the grand finale. Suddenly, the tempo picks up. There's grace notes galore, remember those Italian ornamentations, while Figaro sings about being swift like lightning and promises not to fail in his mission. Well, his multiple missions, if you believe him. And the whole piece ends with another Rossini crescendo that climaxes with Figaro singing his last proclamation before finishing on some good old tonic chords.
So that was all in good fun, of course. We hope you'll forgive us for having slept on this great composer for so long, yes. apparently. We are so sorry for our oversight. And we are so sorry for our oversight, and Rossini is not sorry for his overtures. <laughs> and if you know anyone who would like to hear more Rossini or any of the other wonderful composers that we have covered and will cover here on the coffee house, go ahead and share. Send us to friends, family members, co-workers, people on the street, all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people on the street, they need people, to know about Rossini. <laughs> people, and I'll say this, people both on and off the street need to know about Rossini. And they also need to know that we're a great podcast, and you can help them with that by reviewing us on iTunes and Google Play and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not making a great uh, <laughs> case for being well-reviewed here, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh heavens! Oh no! Heavens let's, indeed. We let's should probably end it conclude. before we dig ourselves into more of a hole. So, for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I am Asa, and I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Largo Olfactotum was performed by the U.S. Navy Band. You can find the Coffeehouse on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank you.